0: My name is Greg, I serve here as one of the pastors at Midtown Community Church, and uh, for our teaching time this morning, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles in the pew, um, you can find it around you. Uh, We'll be on page 855. And I do want to say that if you don't own a Bible or could use one, or you know somebody that could use a Bible, please feel free to take that Bible home with you. It's our gift to you. As you're turning there, um, we are now officially in the Christmas season, right? And the Christmas season is replete with fables. Do we all know what a fable is? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a fictional story that imparts some sort of moral lesson, right? Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, a little drummer boy, the, uh, the voluptuous, benevolent man who's going to remain unnamed for fear of ruining childhood wonder. It, every one of us has grown up hearing these fables that teach us things about life and how to live it. And this goes beyond the Christmas season, right? The fable of the tortoise and the hare tells us what? Slow and steady wins the race. Yeah, the fable of the boy who cried woof tells us that lying is not rewarded in the long run. Beauty and the Beast tells us that true loveliness is not on the outside, but is in the heart. Snow White tells us that living in the woods with seven tiny men could be a fine idea after all, right? <laughs> Important life lessons all around. But Matthew's gospel story, Matthew's telling of the Jesus story, doesn't begin something like, Once upon a time, in a land far, far away. No, he begins an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. And then he proceeds to bombard his readers with a 15 consecutive verses of exhilarating names. Many of these names I've never even heard before, and all of these names in a few minutes I'm going to have to stand up here and try to pronounce in front of you. So you should feel just a little bit bad for me. Why does Matthew start like this? Right? Has he never taken a writing class before? Does he not know what a rhetorical hook is? Well, Matthew begins the story this way because by starting like this, he's communicating to us just what kind of story he's interested in telling us. This is important because many of us, I think, would prefer to read this Jesus story as if it were a fable. It seems convenient to read it this way because if we read Jesus' story like it's a fable, then we can treat the story as just like ancient good advice, ancient wisdom for us today, right? There's nothing too demanding about a fable. You can take the moral of the story, even try to live by it, kind of following in the footsteps of Jesus long enough and so long that they don't lead you anywhere like too unreasonable or require anything of us too demanding, Because as soon as a fable loses its usefulness, you can kind of throw it in the intellectual trash bin and find another, more useful source of good advice. In some ways, taking this Jesus story as a fable sounds pretty nice. But in his opening sentences here, Matthew slams that interpretive door in our faces. He has no patience for fables when it comes to Jesus. What concerns Matthew is not giving good advice, but giving good news. See, Matthew's story is more similar to like a newspaper headline than it is a fable. An account of the genealogy of Jesus is Matthew's way of saying from the get-go, I don't need a rhetorical hook. This is objectively interesting. And whether you like it or not, want to believe it or not, accept it or not, follow it or not, trust it or not, this happened in history, and it is a cosmic newspaper headline of dramatic importance. So this morning, we're beginning our Advent series through Matthew 1 and 2, and we're calling it Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. And we've named our sermon series this after a hymn by the same name that goes all the way back to the fourth century. Um, this hymn, which is called Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence, you can kind of think of it like the first Christmas song ever written. And I'm guessing, probably it's not a very familiar song. Not many of us have heard it like playing over the loudspeakers at Giant as we grocery shop. And it's a bit too intense to make it on Spotify's like Christmas classics playlist. But it better than almost any song I've ever heard illustrates for us the grandeur of that newspaper headline God became a human. And so every Sunday in Advent, our service is going to begin with a portion of this hymn like it did this Sunday to help us marvel at this moment, the moment where the divine mingles with the dust, and then what it means for us 2,000 years later to live on the other side of that event. So the first verse of this hymn goes like this. Let all mortal flesh keep silence, and with fear and trembling stand, ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ, our God to earth descended, our full homage to demand. A fable can't demand our full homage. A Messiah can. And it's a Messiah that Matthew is bent on introducing us to this morning. And so as I read from Matthew verses 1, or chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, I invite you to listen with open ears as I read from this book that we love. This is God's word. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Ahem. Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Sol- Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam followed Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, Joram fathered Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham, Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Ammon, Ammon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abiad, Abiad fathered Eliakim, Eliakim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Achim, Achim fathered Eliad, Eliad fathered fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Mathen, Mathen fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. Will you pray with me? Father, as we begin to study your word this morning, Remind us that every name in this genealogy and this genealogy itself was breathed out by your Holy Spirit, that it is useful for teaching, correction, and training in righteousness. Pray that the Holy Spirit would bear upon our hearts that he would teach us from this text what you would want us to learn. Pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So this morning, we're going to be talking about this genealogy, this text, and we're going to do so from three different angles. First, we're going to talk about a new Genesis, second, an old family, and third, a bad mathematician. A new Genesis, an old family, and a bad mathematician. First, let's talk about a new Genesis. So if you look at the text and bring your eyes all the way to the beginning of it, look once more with me at how it starts. An account of the genealogy. An account of the genealogy. Now, just a warning, we're about to get slightly uh, nerdier than usual for like just a few minutes. And so like, if you are a Bible nerd, you're welcome. If you're not, feel free to check your Instagram or something, it doesn't bother me. But God sees. (laughs) This phrase... An account of the genealogy in Greek is Biblos Geneseos. Biblos Geneseos. Can everybody say that? That was all right. Biblos Geneseos. The word Biblos is the word that is translated as an account. It literally just means book. It's where we get the term Bible from, Biblos. Geneseos is literally just translated Genesis. You can kind of hear it there. Geneseos. So translated like very woodenly and straightforwardly, this could also read a book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. A book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew is writing here primarily to a Jewish audience who spoke Greek. An audience who on the one hand was familiar with the Bible and the stories of it because they grew up telling its stories around campfires to each other and an audience who did so in Greek. And so when Matthew uses an expression like byblos geneseos, it almost definitely would ring a bell for them. This is especially true because byblos geneseos, that construction is only used in the entire Bible two other places. And both of them occur in the first few chapters of Genesis. So the first place, byblos geneseos, the book of the Genesis, occurs is in Genesis chapter two with the story of how creation happened. And it says, the book of the Genesis of the heavens and the earth. So this is all the way back at the beginning of time when God creates everything, the sky and the land, the book of the Genesis. It's about land. And then the second place it's ever used is in Genesis five, which is about the lineage of Adam. It says, the book of the Genesis of Adam. So the first place has to do with land, and the second place has to do with lineage, the creation of humanity. And here, Matthew comes along with both of these verses in the background and deliberately uses this phrase a third and final time in the Bible. He reuses the same phrase as in Genesis 2 about the creation, the genesis of land, The same phrase as in Genesis 5, about the genesis of humanity. But this time he uses it of the arrival of Jesus. He does this as if to say, what I'm about to tell you is the good news of a story that includes a new land and a new lineage, a new earth and a new humanity, all brought about by the person of Jesus Christ. This, for Matthew, is a new genesis. And he proceeds then to tell this story. And he lays out the genealogy with this in mind. So look at how it goes. He tells of a new lineage, right? Abraham to David. But note this, he also tells of a land, right? It's curious, right? Why in a genealogy would you list an event like the exile? The answer is because he is saying that the good news of Jesus is about actually both lineage and land, In Jesus, we not only find the rest that our souls as humans long for, but actually the rest that the ground itself longs for. Think about this. We all know humanity is broken, right? But so is our earth. Hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes, wildfires, droughts, plague our earth. Romans talks about how creation itself groans in anticipation, waiting to be restored. And Matthew is saying here that Jesus is this new genesis in which the land itself will be restored. In Jesus, all of creation will someday be reconciled to God. From us, the people who fill our cities, to every square inch of pavement that covers the ground. So if you're checking your Instagram, you can check back in now. Christianity offers a gospel that is radically cosmic in scope. The gospel of Jesus is the beginning of a new creation story in which everything is renewed. So Ben talked about this a good bit last week, and we're not going to beat it to death this week, other than just to say, so often we have an anemic gospel we kind of even just like unwittingly adopt a gospel in which our souls are saved, but our cities are not. We adopt this gospel and talk about it like the gospel is this thing that like eventually at the end of time takes us out of this world and has us fly away to like a spiritual earth, the spiritual place where we sit on clouds with chubby angels and strum harps. But the real gospel of Jesus Christ, this new Genesis is far earthier than that. The arrival of King Jesus is not only good news for people, but for the place, for the whole cosmos. Jesus is a new creation story, a new genesis. But how does this new genesis come about? Well, it comes about by means of an old family. Now, on the surface, this genealogy looks like Basically, nothing more than a list of boring, kind of hard-to-pronounce names, right? This is the kind of passage that, if we're all honest, when we're doing our Bible reading plans, we skip it. Or if we're feeling like, especially daring, we skim at best. But when you look closer at this family tree, we find that Matthew deliberately arranges this genealogy to communicate a message to us. And it's brilliant, Notice, for instance, just how morally broken and unimpressive this family tree is. Jesus doesn't come from some line of like morally upright, law-abiding aristocrats. He comes from a line that includes people like Joseph, ordinary people, rural farmers with a draw. He comes from sinners who for their whole lives couldn't get their act together. He comes from wicked kings who abuse and harm God's people. There are sinful people in this lineage, right? Just in this family tree alone, we have murder, adultery, financial exploitation, rape, incest, prostitution, just to quickly name a few. This is a crooked family tree. And Matthew deliberately constructs this genealogy, not like you'd expect in order to like clean it up and conceal the messiness of it, but to highlight the brokenness of it. For example, look at the second part of verse six. It says, David fathers Solomon by who? Uriah's wife. So if you know this story in the Old Testament, this King David sexually assaults a woman named Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and then when he finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant, has Uriah killed? It's not a happy story. And Matthew writes his genealogy to make sure that we won't forget that sin by deliberately not calling her Bathsheba, but by calling her Uriah's wife. He arranges his genealogy to highlight the sins of the people within it, as if to tell us these are the kind of people Jesus chooses to call his family. Think of this. God in the flesh could have chosen any family line to come from. He could have picked any family in the world. He could have picked a perfect family. You know, the one with no dark backstory, no black sheep. He could have picked a family that's always polite, minds their P's and Q's, never swears, never gets angry, always goes to church, and all of them like wear bow ties and play violin. But he didn't. He picked the messed up, broken, sinful family. The estranged siblings kind of family. The the awkward Thanksgivings ever since that one thing happened, kind of family. The, The conflicted feelings at the funeral, kind of family. That's the family the Messiah chose to come from. And this is good news. This is great news because if we're honest, you and I fit pretty nicely into this family tree. Matthew's genealogy shows us that Jesus loves to come close and get intimately involved with sinners whose lives are an absolute mess. Like, I don't know what you think of when you think of Jesus, but the Jesus of history is not some sort of sanitized, safe, snobby, like standoffish savior. He deals with actual people, not ideal people. And I want you to notice something in particular about the kind of messiness in this genealogy. So in in most genealogies in the Jewish religion, there wouldn't be any women listed at all, right? Jewish genealogies are written to anticipate like the birth of a future male Messiah. And so when they write their genealogies, they would just list the men. And here in Matthew's genealogy, he lists five different women. This is virtually unheard of. Five different women. And then now on top of this, look at the specific women that he chooses to list. He lists Tamar in verse 3, Rahab and Ruth in verse 5, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, in verse 6, and Mary in verse 16. Like, why in the world would you include these women? What about the matriarchs of the Old Testament? What about Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel? What about these women? Why not list them? Well, what's beautiful and fascinating is that every single one of these women here that Matthew lists Has something significant in common. Namely, that every single woman Matthew lists in this genealogy has had her story marked by some sort of sexual scandal. Tamar committed incest and got pregnant by her father in law. Rahab is a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabite, a people like known in the time for their sexual deviancy and who honestly had a pretty sketchy night with a man named Boaz. Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, was taken advantage of by a, by a man in power. And, and Mary, an unwed, pregnant teenage girl in an era where you could get killed for being such a thing. All of these women had their lives marked by some sort of se- sexual scandal And Matthew deliberately includes them in his list of this genealogy of the Messiah as if to gently whisper to us centuries later, when I am talking about a Messiah who loves to get close to the broken, I am not talking in the abstract. When I talk about a Messiah who longs to make sinful people a part of his family. I am not talking about the small, little sins that we commit, the small, little things that we're ashamed of. I am talking about the center, the most sensitive part of your life, the center of your shame. And if we're honest, for many of us, just like these women, the area of shame that is most sensitive in each and every one of our lives is also sexual in nature. Ever since Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together to make a new pair of underwear to hide their shame, humanity as a whole, each and every one of us have been sexually broken. Every single person, without fail, walked into this room this morning broken sexually. For all of us. Whether by the things that we've done, the things that we are doing, or the things done to us, our sexual lives can leave us feeling dirty and ashamed, like the air of our soul has been polluted. Whether it's the like, the accusing, guilty thoughts in your head, saying, I can't believe you've done that. Again? Really, again? When are you going to get your act together? Or it's the stomach-churning, nauseating confusion every time you think of that person or that place. Or it's that deep, abiding feeling of like, I am broken and there's something wrong with me. Or it's not even being able to think of your childhood without also being able to think of this. Whatever it is, Matthew includes these women in his genealogy to gently reassure us that no matter the shame, fear, self-loathing, anger, no matter the shame we feel, God chooses and wants people like us in his family. The kind of people Jesus came from are also the kind of people Jesus comes for. We are the kind of people Jesus came to get close to. And the place Church, of your maximum shame in your life is also the place where King Jesus wants to meet you and bring the maximum level of healing. See, the good news of Jesus and his arrival and his genealogy is good news, but it has a dark shadow. The good news is that Jesus redeems, brings sinners into his family, forgives and makes whole what has long been broken. The dark shadow is that not many of us will tend to experience that lived forgiveness as a real emotional reality because we refuse to let Jesus into the deep shame that we've hidden inside ourselves. But it's available to you if you want it. Matthew constructs his genealogy to highlight the brokenness of Jesus' family tree and to, from the get-go, Go, reassure us and let us know that it is people just like you and I that Jesus has come for. So we've had a new Genesis, an old family, finally a bad mathematician. As I read this text earlier, you you were probably thinking, like, what the heck is Matthew's obsession with the number 14? Why does he end talking about like 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile, 14 from exile to Messiah? What's with the number 14? Well, the reason Matthew divides this genealogy up into sets of 14 is because in the ancient world, certain numbers tended to correspond with certain letters of the Hebrew and, uh, this and certain concepts as well. This process is called gematria. And the number 14 is a numeric way of saying David's name. So David is this huge figure for Messiah. Right now and throughout the gospel, he's going to demonstrate for us again and again that Jesus is the son of David. He's this royal messianic king. And we could talk a lot about that, but we just don't have the time. What I want to do is draw your attention to what seems to be some pretty sketchy math going on here. So there are three sets of 14 names here in Matthew's genealogy. Three sets of 14, which ought to be how many names? 42, right? Like I am terrible at math. I was public schooled, but I can do that. There ought to be 42 names, and yet there are 41 names in this genealogy. You don't believe me? You can go home and count them for yourself. I spent enough time plugging them into an Excel spreadsheet this week to be very certain of it. There are 41 names in this genealogy when there should be 42. And this is because the last set of 14 generations, 14 names, really only includes 13 so what's going on here? Like, is Matthew just a bad mathematician? Does he not know how to count to 14? Like, of course he knows. Matthew used to be a tax collector. He was a finance guy. He did numbers for a living. This is a type A, detail-oriented finance bro. Like, he might be bad at other things, but he's not the type of guy to lose, tra- to lose track to counting to 14 because he, like, ran out of fingers or something. More than that, Matthew has deliberately left out names from this genealogy. Especially in that second set, Matthew subtracts at least three different genealogies, three different generations to bring his number down to 14. So he knows what he's doing. So why do we have the first set of 14, the second set of 14, and the final set have only 13 names? Well, scholars have argued that the reason that Matthew only includes 13 generations in his final segment of names is to communicate to us that there is a future generation who will someday follow Jesus in this genealogy. There is a a future 14th generation, a sort of spiritual offspring at play here, where those who follow Jesus become engrafted into and become the 14th generation in the family line of Jesus. In other words, this new Genesis that starts with Jesus isn't like God wiping the slate clean and starting fresh. No, God's not into the flawless, brand new custom builds. He's into fixer uppers. The broken, messed up, shame-filled family of Jesus is open. There's a 14th generation, and it's open to those who desire to join it and experience this restoration. This cosmic new creation where our souls are made new and so are our cities is open to those who desire to join it. Church, who is the 14th generation in Matthew's genealogy? It's you. It's you in your brokenness, sin, and shame. It's us being a part of the family of God through whom restoration flows to the ends of the earth. And if you're here this morning and that's not you, you're just considering Christianity or you wouldn't consider yourself yet a follower of Jesus, then I just want to say to you this morning, there's more room in this 14th generation. Like the invitation still stands. There is forgiveness in this family for your sin. There is restoration for where there is shame. And there's a new creation of which you can be a part. This is no fable. This is cosmic good news, a newspaper headline of a new family, a new genesis in Jesus Christ, a family of God, full of broken sinners like you and I, who are forgiven, accepted, loved, never cast out, and where our shame is turned into glory. And it is open to every single one of us whenever we want to join it. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this best news, the best news that this world has ever seen. That your son saw us in our brokenness, suffering, and shame. And instead of wiping us out or starting fresh, he took on a human nature to become part of us, to get close to us, to join our family so that we could join his. I pray now that as we sing, as we end our service, as we come to the table, that you would make this truth shine ever brightly in our hearts. Remind us of the glorious gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us to bring us into his family. It's in his name and for his sake we pray. Amen.